everybody, welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. This episode, Thursday Night Lights with author Michael Hurd. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. I'm your host, Jackson Michael. In this episode, we dig into the rich history of football in the Prairie View Interscholastic League, also known as the PVIL, a league that provided the high school training ground for many NFL legends, including Kenny Houston, Bubba Smith, and Otis Taylor. Author Michael Hurd is with us. He'll share stories from his book called Thursday Night Lights, the story of black high school football in Texas, published by the University of Texas Press and available at their website, as well as any major bookstore and at Amazon.com. Michael Hurd is the director of Prairie View A&M University's Texas Institute for Preservation of History and Culture. He also worked as a sports writer for the Houston Post, Austin American Statesman, USA Today, and Yahoo Sports. For more than a decade, Hurd served as a member of the National Football Foundation's Honors Court, which selects players from smaller colleges to be nominated for the College Football Hall of Fame. And Michael Hurd currently serves on the selection committee for the Black College Football Hall of Fame. And he's here with us today to talk about his book, Thursday Night Lights, which covers the history of the Prairie View Interscholastic League otherwise known as the PVIL. That was the governing board for black schools during segregation. I asked her what inspired him to write this book and why he chose the name Thursday Night Lights. Basically, it's just my experience growing up in Houston during the segregated era. You know, the teams that I knew back then, the high school teams that I knew were teams in the PVIL. You know, of course, all the schools in Houston, you know, Worthing, Yates, Washington, Cashmere, Wheatley, you know, all those schools. But then the schools that came in to play them from the coast, you know, Galveston Central and uh, Beaumont Hebert and, and schools like that. So those were the teams that I knew because... You know, given the era, we weren't going to Friday night games for the white high schools, you know, with the white high schools playing on Friday and Saturday nights and the black high schools playing on Wednesday and Thursday nights. Some of those schools played on Monday or Tuesday nights. Basically, the teams that I followed and most of the black communities follow were the teams in the PVIL through the black newspapers in Houston, the Informer and the Forward Times. And so that was the football that I knew. But what really got me going with it was one year, I think it was like 2007, I went to the Prairie View Interscholastic League Coaches Association Hall of Honor, Hall of Fame banquet. And what they do is this is a group of former PVIL coaches and players. And every year they have a banquet to honor their peers, you know, some guys who probably didn't have any kind of exposure or get any kind of awards for what they had done back in the day at the high school level. Of course, so many of those guys went on to fame and accolades at the collegiate level and, and professional football. But I went to this banquet, and from just talking with the guys there, it was just so moving. And a lot of those guys, I knew their names. You know, I hadn't met those guys, but I, I had heard of them. I knew their names. I knew who they were and, and how good they were when they played high school football. You know, and it just kind of sparked in me, you know, man, somebody should write about these guys. This was maybe the biggest revelation as I started researching. You know, has anyone ever written about these guys? Has anyone ever done that book? And for a state that's so high school football crazy, 
in-depth account of what the PVIO was and, and what those schools were and what, what all of that experience was about. And so I'm like, well, I think I'm going to write that book. It needs to be written and these guys need to be recognized. Heard hit the ground running. He notes that he received a tremendous amount of support from a PVIL coaching legend, Walter Day, who previously had spent a great amount of time painstakingly gathering PVIL records. One guy who was there, Coach Walter Day, who had a really good career at Corsica County Jackson High School at one state championship and had a really good program. But after he retired, Coach Day dedicated himself to going around the state to libraries and newspapers and digging around and putting together a book called Remembering the Past with Pride. And actually, it was a series of books that he self-published. And when I mean self-published, it was basically he copied what clips there were and just put them together. He did one for football, baseball, basketball, and track. I got a hold of the book that he did for football, and it was really integral to my research. And when I told him what I was doing, he could not have been more supportive or excited about it. Obviously, he knew about this lack of information about the PVIL, and so he was very supportive. He passed away before my book came out, and that was one of my big disappointments because I know that he would have loved that book, and he would have been so proud about it. And again, he was just so supportive of me undertaking that. Michael Hurd attended Worthing High School in Houston. He painted a wonderful description of game day and the excitement around it in his book. He also takes us back in time now. All day, you know, that's all that everybody was talking about. You know, you're going to the game tonight? Yeah, all that kind of stuff. You know, in my household, I, I talk about my older sister, my younger brother. We'd be getting ready to go to school. We'd have the radio on to uh, KCOH, you know, which is a black station in Houston. And that's all they, they would be talking about on the radio is the game and, and who was playing. And, and like, say, if Worthing, my school was playing Jack Yates or something like that. The disc jockey, his name was King B, Clifton Smith, King B. The, he would just start teasing fans on both sides. And he had this little tune. It would go something like, you know, uh, Yates gonna beat the devil out of Worthing. Yates gonna beat the devil out of Worthing. And people would just go crazy, you know, calling in and, and uh, you know, supporting their teams. And it was just a, it was just a fun day all around. Towards the end of the day, we would always have a big pep rally in the uh, auditorium. The band would be there and playing these lively songs, and a lot of the kids would have green and gold pom-poms and, and cheerleaders, and, and of course, and they would bring the football team up on the stage and introduce um, some of the key players and all that, and they would say a word or two. And it, it was just a fun day, it was just a really fun day. The great Otis Taylor, who helped the Kansas City Chiefs win Super Bowl IV with a big touchdown, played football at Worthing. He played college ball at Prairie View A&M. He was drafted by both the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles, who later traded his rights to the Dallas Cowboys in the days when the AFL and NFL battled for draft picks. Now, the story goes that the Cowboys hid Otis Taylor in a motel room in efforts to keep the Kansas City Chiefs from getting a hold of him and signing him to a contract. The Chiefs, however, found out where Otis Taylor was and snug him out of a window, promising him a new Ford Thunderbird if he would sign a contract with the Chiefs rather than the Cowboys. Now, Michael Hurd is going to vividly recall for us 
the day Otis Taylor returned to his old neighborhood and showed off that brand new Thunderbird to the neighborhood kids. We had a little dirt basketball playground, you know, uh, it was just basically it was just a vacant lot and we put up a goal and, and so we'd play over there. It was like just dirt, really. You know, of course, when it rained, it was mud. But but we were playing one day and it was after he had signed his contract uh, with the Chiefs and all of a sudden, here's Otis pulling up in his candy apple red brand new Thunderbird convertible. <laughs> and he parked it and of course everybody, we stopped playing and we ran over and he just sat there, you know, in the driver's seat entertaining us for a little bit, letting us see his new car and talking about going to play for the Chiefs. He had grown up right around the corner from me. He was a little bit older than me, of course, so I didn't really know him, you know, hanging out with him or friends or anything like that, but I knew his family and and him being there, so it was his kind of homecoming and hanging out with the fellas in the hood and saying, look what I got and that sort of stuff. You know, we were all big fans of Otis because he was just an incredible athlete. A lot of people didn't know it, but he, he was a quarterback at Worthing and was a very good quarterback. But then he got to Prairie View, and Prairie View had a kid named Jimmy Kearney from Wharton, and Jimmy Kearney was, was way better, and which is saying a lot because Otis was really good, but Jimmy Kearney was just an incredible quarterback. And uh, that's in part how uh, Otis ended up being a, a wide receiver at Prairie View. Jim Kearney played 10 years in the NFL as a defensive back, and he also started in Super Bowl IV for the Kansas City Chiefs at safety. Ken Houston, one of the greatest safeties in NFL history, also played on that Prairie View team with Kearney and Otis Taylor. All three of them played high school ball in the Prairie View Interscholastic League. Houston, Texas boasted a wealth of football talent. The Bayou City also provided a home to one of the most storied rivalries in American high school football. Yates and Wheatley met each year in a showdown called the Turkey Day Classic. Hurt tells us about the game that was played each year on Thanksgiving for decades and originally also included Booker T. Washington High School in the mix. From the early 40s to the late 60s, the uh, Yates-Wheatley game was the biggest high school sporting event in the country. And this was just the ultimate rivalry because they were among two of the first three high schools for African-Americans in Houston. Booker T. Washington was the first Booker T. Washington in the early 20s and then Yates and Wheatley in the late 20s. And so for that game, what you have is maybe in one house, you have a grandparent who went to Yates or Wheatley or even Booker T. Washington. And then you would have a parent who went to one of those three schools. And then, of course, whatever school the child was going to. So you had all of these different uh, allegiances, you know, perhaps in one household or, or certainly in one family. And because initially that game would rotate. One year it would be Booker T. Washington against Yates. Uh, one year it might be Wheatley against Washington or, or whatever. And it didn't really become the Thanksgiving a classic until the early 40s when Yates and Wheatley had proven that, that would be the big draw for Thanksgiving Day. It was literally a social event of the season for black Houstonians. Everybody went to that game. And the thing at the time, Jefferson Stadium in the Third Ward, like a block from Jack Yates High School, and I think it seated something like 25 or 30,000. Then the Houston Oilers came in, in in the 60s and it expanded it to about 40,000. But 30,000 or 40,000 didn't matter. The stands are full, and you have fans standing, lining the field. There was a track around the field. Uh, but fans would be standing 
going on that track, lining that field and circling the whole uh, field, you know, and so it was a place to be, and there would be these parades in Third Ward and Fifth Ward the morning of the game, you know, pep rallies and and that sort of thing, and just an incredible spirit uh, throughout all of Black Houston. So you got a standing room only crowd, and you have the game being broadcast on a black radio station, you know, KCOH would broadcast that game every year, so there was this excitement, and everywhere I went, everywhere I've gone talking about this book, and everywhere that I went when I was doing my research, I covered the state. The people that I talk with all knew about that game in those areas. They all knew about the Yates and Wheatley game. That's how popular that game was. Although the PVIL experienced a great deal of success, especially in the 1960s, most PVIL programs sprouted from humble beginnings. Hurd tells us about Joe Washington Sr. starting up a football program while a student in Rosenberg, Texas in the 1940s. They literally had no equipment. You know, I talk in a book about Joe Washington and how he got his first uniform. He bought it at Sears. You know, he went down, and he didn't even buy a full uniform. I think he just had some pants or a helmet or something like that. And uh, I think somebody mentioned that a relative had given them an Army helmet. <laughs> you know, he adapted an Army helmet, you know, to, to, to play football. But they didn't have a lot of equipment. They didn't have even a locker room. You know, some of those uh, programs, they would have to change uh, into their uniforms such as they were in the school before they traveled to play a game. Even when they played games at home, they didn't have a locker room. They just dressed somewhere in the school. Those programs really didn't have anything, and including coaches. You know, some of the first black coaches were just teachers. They weren't football players. They hadn't played the game. And mostly they just kind of monitored the guys in a physical activity. A lot of those guys taught themselves to play. And I really liked the story of Joe Washington, who growing up in Rosenberg would take the bus every weekend to Houston to go to the theater. But his biggest interest was the newsreel, the movie town newsreel, because they would show highlights of college football games. And that's how he started to learn about playing football. He really liked Frankie Albert from Stanford because they were about the same size as he could tell. And he kind of had some of the same skills as a quarterback. And, and so Joe would go to the theater, watch the newsreel, and watch the highlights from college football and take back some of the things that he had picked up on. And he was kind of the coach of his high school team in, in a lot of ways because, like I said, back then they didn't have a coach who had played the game, just somebody who helped organize it and just kind of kind of watch the kids. And that's how a lot of those programs started. Joe Washington Sr. eventually coached his son, Joe Washington Jr., at Port Arthur Lincoln. A lot of you might remember Joe Washington Jr. from his playing days at the University of Oklahoma, also in the NFL with the Baltimore Colts and Washington Redskins, and being drafted fourth overall in the 1976 NFL draft by the San Diego Chargers. That area of South Texas with Port Arthur, Beaumont, and Orange, Texas became known as the Golden Triangle. Beaumont's Charlton Pollard High School and Beaumont's Hebert High School stood as giants in the district and were led by outstanding and charismatic coaches. Clifford Ozan coached at Hebert High and Willie Ray Smith Sr. coached at Charlton Pollard 
after first coaching at Wallace High School in nearby Orange, Texas. You've almost certainly heard of at least one of Willie Ray Smith Sr.'s football-playing sons. Of course, that family is so noted. He was a great head coach. You know, and of course, uh, Bubba and Tody, you know, were great players. But the youngest of his sons, Willie Ray Jr., was probably the best of the bunch and had a knee injury his senior year at Beaumont Charlton Pollard, but uh, went on to Kansas and played with Gail Sayers, who... Uh, who would admit at, at one point that Willie Ray Smith was better than he was, <laughs> you know, which obviously is saying quite a bit. But Coach Smith, you know, started out at Wallace High School in Orange, Texas, and his departing is recalled as the last they saw of Coach Smith at, at Orange Wallace was Ernie Ladd, the great Ernie Ladd carrying him out on his shoulders after Coach Smith had gotten into a disagreement with the school principal <laughs> over the direction of the program. But then he goes to Charlton Pollard and just a lot of success and, and so forth and all the great players that came out of there. Although Willie Ray Smith Sr. was an outstanding football coach, he never actually got to play the game. That was because of a leg injury he sustained as a youth. Michael Hurd tells us the wild and crazy story of how Willie Ray Smith Sr., father to NFL legend Bubba Smith and high school coach to several other pro players, never actually got to play the game himself. Yeah, the story is that, you know, he grew up uh, in North Texas and Denton and one day, he's in downtown Denton, and Bonnie and Clyde are in the process of robbing a bank, and in a shootout with the police, a stray bullet hits Willie Ray in the leg, and it resulted in him having a limp for the rest of his life. He never got to play football because of that. One wonders how great of a football player Bubba Smith's father could have been. Hebert High coach Cliff Ozan got to play football, however, and he played it well. Coach Ozan was this larger-than-life figure. He was, he was a big man. He had played. He was a lineman, and apparently a really good lineman when he played. And, of course, goes to Hebert and that program. You know, he talked a lot about the gold in the triangle. I think that's what I call it in the book, and that's what that area was, Beaumont, Orange, and Port Arthur. And Coach Ozan goes there and pretty much like uh, Willie Ray Smith, you know, really set that program above so many other programs. He's just an excellent coach, father figure, and of course, he saw Jerry Levias's talent like right away, you know, when he was just a kid in junior high school, noticing how Jerry was at that young age, just far, far and away better than any of the other players that he had. But yeah, just an, an excellent coach and uh, just a really good man. You can hear much more about Clifford Ozan in the Jerry Levias Part 1 episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. You can also hear about the Soul Bowl, the annual rivalry game between Charlton Pollard and Hebert, a game that was Beaumont's version of Houston's famed Turkey Day Classic. That Hebert-Charlton Pollard rivalry produced a lot of great pro and college players. Michigan State head coach Duffy Dougherty recruited the area heavily, knowing that Southwest Conference and Southeastern Conference schools ignored the PVIL. Michigan State wasn't the only school making trips to Beaumont. Several out-of-state colleges paid visits. Heard tells us more. Coaches around the country started to realize that there was this talent pool in Texas that the Southern teams weren't even going to touch, weren't even going to look at. And so 
so you started seeing some guys, like in the late 50s, I think early 60s, a guy named Junior Coffey, who went to Washington State and played. And then the big name, Mel Farr, out of Beaumont Hebert in the 60s, you know, went to UCLA and comes an All-American running back there. Then Bubba Smith goes to Michigan State and does his thing there. And Gene Washington goes to Michigan State. You know, one of the things about that was, while the Southwest Conference coaches didn't want anything to do with the PVIO players, all those other coaches around the country said, well, you know, we'll be more than happy to take them. So you had a guy like Duffy Doherty, who was the great coach at Michigan State, and he was heavily recruiting black high schools. And, and Jerry Levias joked that Duffy Doherty had a house in Beaumont. Because Coach Doherty would come down and put on these coaching clinics for the black coaches. And in putting on those clinics, you know, he would also recruit. That's how he would attract guys like Bubba Smith. When we return, we'll dig deeper into the PVIL's influence on pro and college football. And also examine PVIL programs throughout the state of Texas when we return to Thursday Night Lights on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. Hello, I'm Kenny Houston, and I'm listening to the Texas Hall of Fame podcast. Have a great day. If you've enjoyed listening today, please visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells the story of the greatest athletes and coaches in Texas history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, be sure and stay at the Hampton Inn Waco, located just eight minutes from the museum on I-35. The Hampton Inn has recently been renovated and includes free hot breakfast, free Wi-Fi, and an indoor-outdoor pool. And since the Hampton Inn Waco is an official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you never know if you'll bump into a Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee in the lobby. Welcome back to Thursday Night Lights on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, Presented by the Hampton Inn Waco. PVIL stars who wanted to stay closer to home in the South predominantly attended HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, in the SWAC, the Southwest Athletic Conference. Coach Billy Nix built an incredible program in Texas at Prairie View A&M. We discussed earlier the future NFL players Ken Houston, Otis Taylor, and Jim Kearney played for Prairie View. Before those big three, four Prairie View A&M players joined NFL teams in 1960 alone. You can hear more about Ken Houston's time at Prairie View in the Ken Houston episode of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Eddie Robinson built perhaps the most prolific program in the SWAC at Grambling State in Louisiana. Ernie Ladd and Garland Boyette are just two names on the list of men who traveled the road of starring in the PVIL to starring at Grambling to making Pro Bowl rosters in professional football. It wasn't uncommon for Grambling to have as many or more players taken in an NFL or AFL draft as schools like Texas, Alabama, USC, and other big-name NCAA schools. For example, in 1968, Grambling had five players drafted in the NFL draft, 
1969, there were eight players from Grambling drafted in the NFL draft. Tennessee State coach John Merritt also recruited from the PVIL. Indeed, one of his most notable players came from the PVIL. Eldridge Dickey, a quarterback nicknamed the Lord's Prayer, both for his devoutness and playing ability, found his way from the PVIL to Tennessee State to pro football, although he never really got a chance to play quarterback in pro ball, despite being a first-round draft choice. Hurd gives us an overview of Dickey's life on our podcast and goes into further detail in his book, Thursday Night Lights. I say that it's my favorite story in the book, though it's such a tragic story because, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to see him play. And Eldridge was the first high school athlete, quarterback, whatever that I saw that I was like, wow, (laughs) you knew this guy was special. He had a command of the team. He had this big arm. He could throw it. He was mobile. He was far and away to me, the best quarterback to come out of the PBIL. So he has this great career at uh, Booker D. Washington High School in Houston, where they first started calling him the Lord's Prayer. They're two versions of that story. (laughs) At Booker D. Washington, they say they call him that because he led the team in the Lord's Prayer before every game. But then he goes to Tennessee State University to play for the great John Merritt. You know, Merritt was a character in, in and of himself. And Tennessee State had just been nothing before Dickey gets there. So Dickey arrives and just turns the program around, and they win two black college national championships. And he revives the program. And from that, Coach Merritt gave him the nickname, the Lord's Prayer, because Dickey was the answer to Tennessee State's prayers for a winning program. And then he gets drafted by the Raiders ahead of Alabama's Ken Stabler. Apparently, Dickey was playing so well in training camp that Kenny Stabler left the Raiders camp because there's no way I'm going to beat this guy out, even though at that point there had never been a black starting quarterback. So Dickey is playing well in the preseason. The Raiders love him, but he never got to throw a pass in a regular season game. Once the regular season started, they moved him to wide receiver. I think he caught one pass. And that was it for his career with the Raiders. He was there for two years. Then they traded him to the Chiefs, and he's out of the league in three years. He comes back to Houston, and it just weighed on him so heavily. He passed away at a young age. I think it was in his early 50s when he passed away from a heart condition or something like that. But a lot of people say, you know, if it was a heart condition, it was because of a broken heart, because he never really got a chance to realize his dreams of playing in the NFL. The American Football League played its first season in 1960. The league featured eight new pro football teams and created many more opportunities for players to make a professional roster. Many former PVIL players benefited from the wide-open style of play the AFL offered. Hurd says that type of football scheme prevailed in PVIL programs and compares the X's and O's of general PVIL strategies with common UIL football strategies of the time. The PVIL played uh, much more of a wide open game, you know, the wing tee, spread offenses and that, that sort of thing before a lot of those offenses became popular because of the athleticism on the field, especially at the quarterback position. Guys like Levias played a little bit of quarterback, you know, with his speed and quickness. So you had guys like that who could run those offenses. They were exciting to watch. They threw the ball a lot more.
Lamar. They had the fast receivers, and they did a lot of reverses and so forth. Just so much more wide open compared to the UIL teams. You know, they were, I guess, pretty much three yards in a cloud of dust or however you want to call it. But the uh, PVIL schools were all about putting it in the air and the speed that they had on the field. We've previously talked about PVIL football in Houston and in the Golden Triangle. Prairie View Interscholastic League football made its mark throughout Texas, however. There was a wide reach from the Panhandle, you know, Lubbock, Amarillo, Abilene, to Douglas High School in El Paso, and then, of course, all the schools in Central Texas, Austin, and San Antonio. But the majority of those schools were in East Texas, from Houston to Texarkana. If you were a black high school and you were participating in athletics or even academic competitions, you were a part of the PVIL, and that was its reach. It was statewide. Playing games on weekday nights did make things difficult for students in terms of academics. Imagine playing a game two hours from home one night and needing to be in class first thing in the morning on the next day. Some of the schools out west, the schools in the panhandle, they would have these road games. Like if your school was in Abilene, you were Abilene Woodson. If you were a player, you would have to take the bus to Wichita Falls as a black group you weren't going to get hotel rooms. There were no no hotels for you to stay in. So basically, you left school early to drive to wherever it is you were going to play the game. And right after the game, you rode back to your school. And sometimes that's maybe a four or five hour bus ride. The players would get back home three, four o'clock in the morning, if not even later than that, then they're back at school. Now, for me, there were times even, well, I went to the game and then I got back home and then I had to stay up another hour or two studying or writing a paper or whatever, and then you're off to school. You didn't have that luxury of, yeah, it's Friday night, no school tomorrow, we can stay up late after the game, go to Dairy Queen or whatever and hang out and sleep in until Saturday morning. Michael Hurd's book, Thursday Night Lights, the story of black high school football in Texas, provides a wonderful account of PVIL football history. It's a quick yet insightful read with high school stories of Austin Anderson's Night Train Lane and others who excelled on PVIL football fields before careers that landed them in both the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Earl Campbell tells a poignant story about his brothers who never experienced the same opportunity to play football in the limelight as he had. Thursday Night Lights stands as an important read in many regards and recovers a rich history that might have otherwise been lost. The legacy of that league is that it produced so many great players and coaches, but so many of them went for the longest time without getting acknowledged. And that was the thing that I was most happy about in writing this book was to give those guys some recognition. Author Michael Hurd also makes important statements on how many of the great coaches of the PVIL, men who had won state championships and coached future NFL legends, lost their head coaching titles. Assistant coaching jobs were the only ones offered if they wanted to stay coaching after integration. Others took roles in school administration. Thursday Night Lights offers a valuable look at Texas high school sports history and compiles a lot of exciting moments and inspirational stories that might otherwise have been forgotten without author Michael Hurd's efforts. Thursday Night Lights also includes an appendix that provides scores and details from PVIL championship games dating back to the early 1940s. The book is available at major bookstores, on Amazon, and through the University of Texas Press. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by the Hampton in Waco. Please visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. And when you do, book your stay at the Hampton in Waco. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast.